This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti, and I'm happy to introduce Jennifer Holm to the show today. Jennifer is a New York Times bestselling children's author, a three-time Newbery Honors recipient, and today we're focusing on the most recent release in the Eisner Award-winning Baby Mouse series that she is the co-creator on with her brother Matthew, which has sold 3 million plus copies. So welcome to the Cryptic Creator Corner, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we're going to dive into the the new release, The Big Adventures of Baby Mouse, Once Upon a Messy Whisker in a minute. But I wanted to touch on kind of co-creating a successful series with a sibling first, because that sounds really interesting to me. I can't imagine trying to write and illustrate something with my brother. So was <laughs> was the genesis there, you know, behind the series, something from your childhoods? Is it as simple as growing up together and watching Tom and Jerry? Well, so we are two of five siblings. So we grew up in a big family. I was the only girl and I was the middle child. So, you know, when I was growing up, there were a lot of comic books in the house. And in fact, our dad got us into comics. He was a huge, he was a much older father. And he was a huge fan of Prince Valiant and um, Harry and the Pirates and all those great classics. So we actually grew up with the bound volumes of Prince Valiant in the house. And I read them and loved them. And I also read what my brothers were reading, you know, and they were reading all the classic superhero comics. and. I did notice then, <laughs> this is the 70s, that, you know, there were not a lot of ladies in comics. Of course, right. you know, there was Wonder Woman who was, who was making a great comeback. But, you know, as an eight-year-old girl, I did, not, um, I did not relate to her. You know, I don't really relate to her now. And I, I craved a comic book character like Peter Parker, who was like a real kid that my brothers could identify with. And so, I, so while I was growing up and, you know, complaining about this. My baby brother, Matt, was a budding cartoonist. So he actually started, he was always one of these kids that, you know, was doodling and drawing on the edges of his books or anytime he had a free moment. And when he was in about fifth or sixth grade, he started drawing um, a comic, classic four panel comic. And um, it was about a little alien, an alien from outer space and his alien family. And it was, it was kind of like a, 
it felt a little Garfieldy, you know, that kind of sure. setup. Yeah. But he would draw it and he would put it on his tape it on his bedroom door. And I my bedroom was across from his, so I would walk over and I loved it. So I always loved his art. And as we kind of had a parallel trajectory, while I I'm six years older than him. So I grew up and moved to New York City and started my career and started writing for children. And he kept on going on with his art. So he um, got an internship with Tony Auth at the Philadelphia Inquirer because he thought, you know, he wanted to be a political cartoonist. It was a great experience for him because he learned that he hated politics, but he, <laughs> it gave him a lot of, you know, drawing chops. He, he drew the political cartoon for the college newspaper, studied art. And then um, eventually after he graduated from college, he moved to New York and crashed with me in my, you know, 400 square foot studio apartment. So you can survive living in a space that small for like, you know, four or five months with your sibling, you can, you know, survive anything. So once we um, were both living in New York City, I, um, I had the idea for Baby Mouse one day. And I said, what do you think? And he had gone on to do a lot of other comics on his own. I said, would you be interested in, in working on this? And he said, yes. And the rest is history. So, so how did this, uh, this story of seeking representation then and working with your brother ultimately land on a mouse? Why a mouse? I know. Yes. It's funny. There are a lot of rodents in uh, children's literature. There um, are. Yes. It was, it's mostly because when I, so I, you know, growing up with all these boys, my dad still wanted me to have some girl things. So he made this huge, made me this huge three-story dollhouse out of a kit. And it was decorated with um, wallpaper and furniture. But instead of having dolls, we had these like, I had these tiny little dressed mice. There were these little gray mice. Imagine that like you get for your cat at the pet store and they had full costumes on. It was like a thing in the seventies. They came from Germany and you know, I had like a hundred of them. And so he used to play with my mouse house and we all would play with the mouse house and decorate it for Christmas and Halloween and many rainy Saturdays were spent with the mouse house. So that's why the mouse. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as a writer, did you start out wanting to find the, the pocket with younger readers specifically or? No. So I think it definitely, no, it, I just kind of fell into it in a strange way. Um, I started my first books. The first book I wrote was called Our Only May and Million. That was historical fiction inspired by family history. And so I originally wrote that book and I didn't know it was even going to be for kids. It, I thought it was for adults because it had a bit of violence in it. But when I finally got an agent, she said, no, this is perfect for middle grade readers. And, and then I just fell into writing for children. So I wrote you know, many more books after that. Like, I don't know. I, I think by the time Matt and I started working together, I'd written about nine books for young readers. And so I was spending you know, tons of time in school libraries and public libraries. And, and I, you know, I didn't have children yet myself, but I quickly realized that the way that kids access books is through their elementary school library or their public library. They don't mm -hmm. really go to comic book stores. That's really an adult space, although I know it's great to be welcoming children into it. But the problem is kids don't drive, so they don't get into cars. So they hear about books from their teachers. And so it seemed to me that it was obvious that um, to create a comic book series for kids, we would go to children's publishers. So I never even pitched the series to DC Marvel, the classic um, comic book industry. We just went right around and took it to the New York City publishers. 
Sure. So is that how it ended up, you know, in, in more of the graphic novel format versus say like a serial formatting? Yeah. So I definitely wanted it to be, um, a longer read, like, you know, and the way with publishing books, you have to publish, you have to print in a, a cycle of a certain number of pages for it to be bound. So I, I knew enough about that. Um, and we originally saw it as about 80 pages and then we upped it to, uh, it ended up at 96 pages for the original series. Oh, okay. okay. So, you know, the first baby mouse book came out and what, if I'm understanding correctly, it was like end of 2005, early 2006. 2000, about that? Uh, December 2005. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and this is the 21st book, you know, featuring the character. So what keeps inspiring you to, to tell these stories? I mean, Obviously, honestly, it's the readers, the fans. So the original kids we wrote the original books for, those kids are all grown up now and they have kids of their own, many of them. And right. it's, it's, it's really crazy walking into somebody, you know, meeting a, a parent who said, I grew up with your, with your baby mouse books because I don't feel that old, but, but I am. Yeah. Um, and I think that it is remarkable how close readers' kids are. You know, they'll whip through the book once or a graphic novel once and then they'll read it again and again and again, and they'll notice more details every single time to the point that you don't even you didn't even realize you put that little detail in it. So they're they're very very inquisitive that way. For sure. I mean, you're you're a mom yourself. You know, I'm a dad. I'm not sure exactly how old your kids are, but you know, or how much they shaped Baby Mouse at all, or those characters over time. You know, how how much has have your kids like or being a mom influences, or is this about you or you're growing up or so baby mouse is more about me my kids now are i have a 15 year old and a 19 year old so they were around for the my son was around for the whole experience but my daughter was around for a bit i think um she was she was fun to grow up around baby mouse because i was touring a lot and um you know i took her with me it was easier i would just take her out of um daycare and she would travel with me and so my kids pretty much grew up at comic con like from when they were two years old. So they know what booths they want to go to every year. Um, so they didn't so much influence this as some of my later novels, but I did see some things I did notice was for like, the new book was that they definitely like um, bigger trim sizes, like a fatter format. So the new baby mouse is a much bigger trim size than the original baby mouse books. Mm-hmm. And they like to, they like to do what we did when we were kids, which is I used to lay on the, floor with the funny pages, you know, on a Sunday and read the color funnies. And they like to lay on the floor, but with a big, you know, a big collection kind of graphic novel. So they like the bigger formats, you know, like the old, like the Calvin Hobbes collections. It's just nice. Like the Sunday, rainy Sunday book. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having a teenager myself, I, I know a little bit about that. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I actually found refreshing about um, the new book is how the work really hit this sweet spot of feeling current and timeless, which isn't easy. You know, I read a, a fair bit of all ages and YA material. Some of them are not going to date very well. And we live in that time where the the lexicon of our language changes so rapidly, especially with younger people. And I remember during the pandemic, we everything in my house had to be punctuated with fire or that's fire, which I sound terrible saying I shouldn't say it, right? But today, saying that same thing would elicit strange looks, you know, from the teenagers. So how do you avoid those inherent language and technology, ubiquitous cell phones that we have, you know, now uh, potholes, you know, with your work? 
It, it is hard because, you know, somebody's always, in my, one of my kids is always saying, I'm a noob or something. You're a newbie. Yeah. You know, um, luckily my, my actual language is firmly stuck in like growing up from the seventies and eighties. So it hasn't okay. gotten too, uh, too, too hip with the youngins. Um, but I do try to pick when baby mouse has fantasies, she has, she, um, imagines all sorts of things. And in this, in this volume, it's a lot of classic fairy tales. Um, I try to pick things that will, that will be known to a big enough audience. And, um, and sometimes, honestly, the kids um, with the original Baby Mouse books, they didn't understand some of the references. For instance, if they read them when they were in first grade, by fifth grade, they've picked up the cultural references. Sure. So it's sometimes over time, they'll, they'll get it. So yeah, I, 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 it bothers me too, like, um, when I read something and it feels dated and it's only been out for like two years. So. Yeah, and it's so hard with kids it like hard. that. I mean, it's yeah, hard. I mean, that's just hard with like, I feel like popular media in general, really hard. Write period stories and you're safe, right? Exactly. I do. I, that's what I also do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really enjoyed the the presentation on Once Upon a Messy Whisker. Um, there was this this really nice relatability and a strong message with, you know, body acceptance, which I think is something that we all can relate to, but you don't, you don't see as much in kids, in kids store, stories. And, you know, this focusing primarily on her messy whiskers. So why'd you want to focus on that? And and you were telling me a little bit before we started even about how the presentation of baby mouse is, is you're changing it and you're, you're adapting it and how she's kind of the daydream moments. So if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so Baby Mouse is definitely evolving. Um, the original um, series, she, it, Baby Mouse in each book has a, a very specific problem that she's trying to dissolve. And they're mostly problems of just growing up, you know, like going to your first slumber party, um, playing dodgeball at school, just very, you know, typical problems. And she uses her imagination to help her solve the problems. But in this series, one thing that the kids loved about the original series is when the reality kind of fantasy kind of bleeds into reality. So baby mouse has a locker and it's always like eating her, eating her stuff and hiding her lunch. It has like octopus tentacles that come out and snatch her. They love those little moments. So it's, we just decided to kind of capitalize on that. So in the new series, you know, her imagination kind of breaks the fourth wall and actually affects her real life, like spills over to her, into her real life. So. In this book, she, you know, Baby Mouse always has messy whiskers and she wants straight whiskers. And this is just typical for all, all kids everywhere. When I was growing up, my hair was straight as can be. All I wanted was curls. My son's got the curliest hair ever. All he wants is straight hair. So oh, it's sure. like, it's just common. You want what you don't have. So um, no kid is ever happy with their hair. Yeah. Or, or their body or, you know, fill, fill in the blank, right? We all struggle with it. Um, so the daydreams in this one you know, that she's kind of going into, there we're, we're pretty famous here: Rapunzel, Snow White, Titanic. You know, to to kind of to name a few. Um, and we've had this added adventure element that it's kind of injected into to daily life. You know, throughout the series. You know, why? Why do you feel like that resonates so much with with that younger target audience? I think they really resonate with it because they haven't quite figured out life yet you know they don't know they still kind of believe in like magic 
a bit, you know, that this, maybe this could happen. Oh, maybe something crazy could actually happen to me where we're all kind of old grownups and <laughs> beaten down by the world and sure. have no faith in fantasy. Um, but they can kind of see it happening. So they're just, they just still have that sense of wonder in their life and in their, in their eyes. So how do you and Matthew strike the balance, you know, for, for the readers between the, the entertainment aspect and also kind of providing some of that positive messaging in this case, you know, around the whiskers? Yeah, I try to keep a very light hand. I, I don't I don't like didactic books myself. I try not to write too much. You know, this is the lesson you must learn. Um, right. I, I We write to amuse ourselves. So if we think it's funny and cute it usually works um and so i i really try to if there's there's usually a, a light lesson in every book but it's really about you know figuring things out and figuring out normal things in life um like the next book in the series is about friends which is you know the biggest issue for kids ever right and it never goes away um and it's also a very very light lesson so i try to keep the emphasis more on the humor i would say so- how do you blueprint these, right? So you have 21 now, right? So where did the concept for Once Upon a Messy Whisker specifically come from? I just really wanted to change it up. I, 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 we gotten very comfortable in the original series. So it was very, you know, after we kind of figured out the formula after about five books, it was easy to write them. I wanted to challenge myself a bit and we wanted to go into a longer format so you can tell a longer story. The original books were just 90 page, 96 pages. This is like 220, I think. Um, so that felt nice to have all that space, to have some fun fantasies and tangents. We weren't so confined. And it was nice to... Um, it, we were kind of by having the fantasy and reality be the line be much fuzzier. Um, we could do more silly things, really. Okay, and more color. More color, yeah. So it was fun. You know, the kids kids have grown up with now this current generation of of young readers. Say, you know, your average first grader, they're growing up with full color graphic novels, and so they're used to it now. And I think they want it. So you know, it was fun to be able to do it. Unless they can call it manga. Exactly. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> they love manga too. Uh, yeah, it's crazy how much that's exploded. Um, after you, you've got several other six series, successful series you've been working on. You know, does that having multiple different strains, if you will, does that give you more creative freedom in a sense with with Baby Mouse? Say the the you come up with a story idea and it doesn't quite fit in one place, but it might in another. Um, it could potentially. I mean, the other series that uh, we're we're working on simultaneously to baby mouse. We kind of um, do year, you know, they, they one book a year, the other book, another year is the sunny series. And we're up to the fifth book in that, I believe that's historical, you know, it's like historical fiction takes place in the 1970s. And she has a little bit of baby mouse in her in the sense that she, she, she starts, she kind of goes into like, you know, um, imagination bubble and, and dreams about things, but not as deliberately as baby mouse. Um, I think Baby Mouse will always be my sweet spot because I loved being in elementary school. Like that was, that was the best time of life in my opinion, because once you hit middle school, everything goes wrong, right? (laughs) Like that's when all girls get mean and your body changes and you get pimples and nothing is ever the same again. 
but I loved elementary school. It was just, everything was fun. And I guess that's, that's, it will always be my sweet spot for writing. Uh, what's the most rewarding aspect of, of writing stories for a younger audience? I mean, kids are just, they are the best audience in the world. They love, if they like it, they love it so much. And if they don't like something, they will let you know too. They are absolutely the most honest critics you will ever have. And you know, they're going to tell you and it's not coming from like a bad place. They're just like, they tell you like it is. So it's really fun. Yeah. I've gone through that experience recently trying to, to cook more myself and, and it is, it, it's brutal. brutal. Oh, it is so brutal. <laughs> Well, what advice do you have for the next generation of cartoonists and illustrators who likely grew up reading Baby Mouse and other pieces of your work? I mean, I, th- I think the best way to become a, a creator for graphic novels, you know, if you want to be a writer or you want to be an illustrator, is honestly fan fiction. Um, I'm a big proponent of that, and my brothers too, because the way, you know, the way you become, I'm actually not the artist in the relationship, I'm the writer, but the way you become an artist, a classically trained artist is you, you start with the basics and then you start copying other artists. You mm-hmm. learn how to paint by, by practicing. And eventually, once you have all those skills, you'll, you'll want to do something in your own, of your own, in your own tone, in your own style. But you need to get, you need to get the basics down. So I think, you know, even just like, you know, draw baby mouse, draw Garfield, draw whatever you want. All those like how to draw books, they're all good. Just, you know, start copying it uh, and start small. I think if a, it's, it's too stressful if, if, if you tell a kid like, all right, you need to sit down and draw a graphic novel. No, you need, you need to sit down and draw a picture. That's it. Just draw one thing at a time. Don't overwhelm yourself. But I think, um, you know, copying and doing fan fiction or fan art is a good way to start. And, and when you talk to a lot of creators in the field of children's comics, without a doubt, almost all of them said they started out, I would draw Garfield, I would do this, I would do that. And that was their first start. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people that I've talked to recently is, is Tintin, because I think our generation was... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this is just, just me being nosy. I was dig- digging into your background a little bit there. Uh, in preparation for the interview. And it came across this tidbit about you working for Pee Wee's Playhouse back in the day. Yeah, so I've had a very interesting career. So um, after I graduated, I went to a little college in Pennsylvania and then I moved to the big bad Apple, New York City in the in 1990. And I ended up, my second job there, I worked for a commercial production company, an animation company called Broadcast Arts. It was one of two very famous animation companies in New York City. And they were actually the creator of Pee-wee's Playhouse. And they were a traditional animation studio back when we did all animation by hand, cell animation, stop motion animation, claymation. And um, that was, that is part of the reason that I um, felt confident many years later about Baby Mouse, because I was constantly surrounded by all these artists. And at that time in New York in the animation industry, um, we would always, we'd often hire um, comic book creators and comic book artists and, and pencil, pencilers and inkers because everybody was freelance. So, you know, they might work on a comic and that finishes, they come over and they, they color a bunch of cells for a commercial for us. And so it was an open door. People were wandering back and forth between the two industries. And um, that was a really, you know, so I, I was always working with comic book people, but they were coming to work on animation, like, you know, one week here, one week there. So I talked to them about it a lot. And it was, that was really fun. 
But I think what also helped me is I, I ended up staying in that industry for about 10 years. I be, ended up becoming a producer and I produced um, commercials and TV shows and station IDs was that I was used to using a storyboard for commercials. That's how you, you, you create a storyboard and you sell it to a client. And I ended up at Ogilvy and Mather, which is a big ad agency. And I was a broadcast producer there. And the process of getting a commercial made is like this very inherently like a lot of conflict. And so on a daily basis, somebody's telling you your idea is wrong constantly. <laughs> and very quickly, like within 24 hours of stepping in the door, you learn to um, not take anything personally and to take um, criticism and, and then quickly turn around and come up with another idea or propose something else. So you learn how to pitch your work and how to create your work. And so I also learned how to use a storyboard and I, I still use a storyboard today for um, writing out all of my graphic novels. Okay. okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you about like your and Matthew's kind of collaborative process. Like how does, is it as simple as you write, he draws? Not quite. So we, we were honestly overwhelmed at the beginning because um, there had never been a pipeline for creating graphic novels in the publishing industry. So we we had to create one for uh, Random House and we figured out how to do it, which is we also don't live near any, anywhere near each other. We never have. We're on opposite coasts at the moment. So basically what we do is we come up with a general idea together. I'll write it using a storyboard. He'll put his two cents in. He was a professional editor before he became a cartoonist. So he was okay. a magazine editor. So he has a lot of writing background too. Um, then we have our editor at the publishing house. They, we revise the manuscript with them. When they're happy with the revised storyboard, then he starts drawing. Okay. He'll do lots of quick pencil sketches of the storyboard. And he, we treat it like a film. So he'll give me different points of view, um, different camera angles. And then he'll scan all his artwork up and you know, put it in Dropbox. And then I'll download it. And so this is where we have a very unusual partnership. Because traditionally in children's publishing, the writer and the artists never um, collaborate. They often never even meet in real life because the book is, you know, the, the text is bought by the editor and then the editor hires an, uh, a, uh, an artist. So the artist is in charge, basically. But we had so much work that we had to kind of, you know, split it up so that it could get done in a reasonable amount of time. So I'll then download all of his art and then I'll actually lay it out in a, in a layout, I'm actually laying out a book right now, um, a sunny book, so I can show you what my layout looks like. It's just like a double page spread, and I cut out the art, and I, I mean, it's very old school. I just use a glue stick and put it on the page, and I draw the cells, okay. and then I send that back to, I scan it, send it back to him, and then he'll do the final art um, using my um, layouts as the map, and he'll do it digitally on a using a Cintiq, okay. um, which is a, a, you know, I'm sure your listeners probably know it's, it's like a souped up computer for artists, Cintiq is. Um, and that's how we figured out how to do it because unlike DC or Marvel, it's just us. We don't have inkers or a director or anything. But um, the only thing I think that's changed in our work recently is um, with Sunny and with the new baby mouse, because it's in full color, we actually just hire a colorist to do the... Okay. We otherwise we'd never get anything finished. Yeah. It's a full time job coloring, so for sure, 
Well, obviously you're busy promoting this baby mouse book. Um, what else you have happening the rest of 2022 and early 2023 that you can talk about for people to keep oh, an yeah. eye out for? Yeah. So 2023, the sequel to um, the, or the, the second book in the baby mouse series is coming out. It's called baby mouse, the big adventures of baby mouse besties. And it's about baby mouse kind of figuring out her place in her friend's life. So Awesome. Well, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me at jenniferholm.com. I'm also on Instagram at Jennifer L. Holm. Um, and I think that's it. Or you can, and you can find my books at, at bookstores everywhere. Absolutely. And hopefully comic book shops. Uh, mine does. Mine carries them for sure. So. Nice. They, they have a whole kids section. It's fantastic. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today on the show, Jennifer, to talk about Baby Mouse and other things. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure what superlatives exactly I can I can add to to the incredible award-winning series already. You know, the new book is The Big Adventures of Baby Mouse Once Upon a Messy Whisker. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, the the empowering elements of the story and people can pick it up or download it now wherever they get their books. So this is Brian O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Eddie. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.